0: I told Becky the wrong passage, so if you're looking at the insert that we received, it has the whole chapter, uh, but I meant to tell Becky that we're only going through verse 22, and you'll see why once we get there. But if you were with us last week through our time in chapter 24, you might recall that tonight we find ourselves here in chapter 25 following a changing of command from one governor to the next. From Felix to this new governor, whose name is Portius Festus. The Apostle Paul was sitting in prison in Caesarea, which is the Mediterranean port city of the Judean region. So he's not too far from Jerusalem. He's tucked up near the coast. Uh, actually a little bit northwest of Jerusalem, if you're into geography. And he's sitting there, as you may recall, because he's been captured by the Jews when he was visiting the temple in Jerusalem. He was there to make purification vows. We've been talking about this for several weeks, so it may sound a bit repetitive. Uh, But he was there to make these purification vows. He was captured by the Jews who were taking him out to the courts to stone him, presumably to kill him. And then he was rescued by the Roman guards who were stationed nearby, taken into their custody, and. Eventually, while he's being held in custody, they hear of a plot to ambush Paul and to kill him, and so the Roman tribune, or the leader of the guards, sends Paul under the cover of night to the city of Caesarea. So once he arrived in Caesarea, he had a hearing before the governor, Felix, and Felix heard his whole story, but Felix, being a sort of corrupt governor, as was quite common in those days, uh, he didn't want to disrupt or anger the Jews who were the sort of main constituents of his region. And so he did not decide to free Paul. That would have made them very angry. But he also knew Paul actually was clearly innocent. And so he did what he could only do in order to keep the peace. He kept Paul sitting in prison and He let Paul sit there for two years until, as we were told last week at the very end of 24, there was a change of command now from Felix to Festus. So Festus has come into power, and that's where we find ourselves tonight. Sort of with a changing, it's almost like with a new president, a changing of the guard, so to speak. And so with this freshly in our minds, let's pray. Our God, we come to your word asking asking you that you would help us to understand it and to see uh, the story of the church as it was lived through the Apostle Paul here in this chapter. Lord, we ask that you would help us to follow Paul's example as he was following the example of Christ. That we would see his commitment and his zeal to the good news of Christ's grace And may we share that same commitment to it in our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, hear the word of the living God from Acts 25, verses 1 through 2, or 22. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. This would be a second ambush. They're planning still to kill him. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done nothing wrong or no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The other day as I was cleaning up around the house and doing dishes, as I often do, I was listening to a video podcast of uh, a CRC pastor who you may have heard of by now. His name is Paul Vanderclay. He is fairly well known. You can see him here in a clip. I'm not going to play the clip. That's just a screenshot that you can see of Paul where he will sit in his office and he will talk to a camera often for a very long period of time. Now, Paul and his YouTube channel will cover all sorts of subjects vastly, uh, ranges vastly what he will cover. So I don't necessarily recommend going and listening to everything Paul says. It will be largely confusing. A lot of it's very heady and philosophical. But he does commonly do also some videos on the status or the state of the CRC as it is today. And so he'll do videos on all kinds of things, but I I love his videos on the CRC. He's got helpful videos. And so this was one of the videos I was watching this last week, where he's talking about what's going on in the CRC as it pertains to sexuality questions. Uh, And he's actually working on the video you can see the video in the video there of a historian, a British historian, whose name is Tom Holland. So Tom Holland wrote this book, which you can see, uh, called Dominion, and the subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And so Tom Holland is a scholar of Greco-Roman antiquities, and he's particularly interested in how Christianity has changed the world. Now, this wasn't actually Tom Holland's sort of, uh, it's not what he started out to write about. He was a sort of lifelong agnostic or atheist, and as he studied ancient antiquity with the Greco-Roman empire, he realized for some reason his own moral compass was very different than the moral compass of the ancient world. And as he began to ask why this was, the only conclusive answer he could begin to see that stood out to him was Christianity remade the world. And that's what this book is all about. And so he's sort of, in many ways, on his way towards Christianity. Uh, But in this video, something that stood out to me, which I thought was fascinating, so this man Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, by the way, if any young people are thinking that, uh, a different Tom Holland, um, In this video, he talks about the meaning and the importance of Roman citizenship. He's actually comparing and contrasting homosexuality back then with homosexuality as it is today, and hence why Pastor Paul is referencing this material. But he talks about how, in sort of vulgar terms, um, how the ancient Romans would treat anyone who wasn't a, a citizen with Complete disrespect if they wanted to. So if you were a slave in particular, or just a non-citizen, or if you were a woman, which sort of meant kind of by definition that you were a non-citizen. Some women were citizens from what I understand. But if you weren't a citizen, you would be treated often with total disrespect. And actually it was not seen as morally wrong to sexually dominate you or abuse you or even to rape you. So he's talking about how the, the sexual moralities of then versus now are actually quite different. And he's arguing that Christianity has has been the reason for this change. Now, this all stood out to me not because of the sexuality questions involved, but really for the citizenship questions involved. Uh, I don't know about you, but this this idea floored me that if you weren't seen as a citizen, it was totally okay to treat you uh, with complete disrespect. Uh, And so this stood out to me because as we've been seeing in the book of Acts in these last few chapters, Paul's citizenship is a really important part of the story. Uh, We can maybe reflect on Acts chapter 23, where the, the Romans were about to start flogging him, which very well could have killed him when Paul finally brings out the fact that he was a Roman citizen. Once he tells them this, they stop immediately. They all actually kind of get a little bit scared and they stop immediately what they are doing. And so while they while the Romans didn't have a whole lot of regard or respect for those who weren't citizens, interestingly they had a ton of respect and regard for those who were. And that's what makes this passage all the more interesting. We can see that the king or the governor Festus wanted so much to just do the Jews a favor He wanted to keep the peace, and he wanted to keep a good relationship between himself and the Jews, who were sort of the leading constituency of his region. But he couldn't quite do it. He still had to follow Roman law, Roman practices and habits and routines. So this is one of the great factors of the story. The very first verse uh, makes this clear that... Festus wanted to do what he could to help them. So we see that it says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, so three days into his governorship, he went up to Jerusalem from Judea. And you might think of this as a sort of diplomatic visit, of one of, where he's visiting one of the more uh, si- significant and important cities of his region or of his province. And so in essence, he's wanting to make a good impression on them. He wants to maintain a good relationship between the governor and these people. And so he makes this 30-mile or so trip himself, and he goes down to visit them. And so once he arrived there, he met with the, with the leaders, what verse 2 calls the chief priests and the principal men sort of the ringleaders of the Jews, you might say, probably the council, the Sanhedrin. And we see that the Jews once again trot out their case against Paul. Now remember, it's been two years, but they still remember exactly what they were trying to accuse Paul of. They were making up sort of lies that were stretching the truth uh, in order to bring Paul down. And they sort of thought that they could do this. They They believed that because of Festus's desire to give them a favor they believe that this could happen but Luke sees through their deceit and he tells us at the end of verse 3 that it was actually because they were planning like, once again to ambush Paul to kill him on the way and so it appears then that their murderous ambitions to kill him have not changed two years prior that's what sent Paul to to Caesarea. They heard of his, the, their ambitions to kill him, to ambush him on his way from the Roman fortress, uh, the 150-foot walk to the chamber, the, the council chamber, where Paul was to be tried. They, they said that as the Roman guards walk with Paul out there, we're going to go jump, jump him, essentially ambush him, and kill him before anything can be done. And here again, then, we see yet another glorious twist of irony here. Acts is full of irony. It seems that their their desire to see Paul killed is actually what sort of starts to get the ball rolling for Festus, and actually, as we'll see, gets Paul sort of sent off. They, they pick up the intensity again to get the ball rolling in the court against Paul in the court case. And that eventually is what leads Paul to appealing to Caesar and making his way towards Rome, as we'll see. But Festus does not give in. He refuses their request, and he invites them to come and to try to bring charges against Paul. They they tell him, bring Paul here. And he says, no, you have to come and see Paul and Caesarea yourselves. And so as we see in verses 6 and 7, they accepted this. And so after what Luke says are about eight or ten days, it's a wonderfully ambiguous number, Festus returns to Caesarea and reopens Paul's case the following day. He's very quick about this. He doesn't want this whole problem to linger. And so it seems as though he's probably wanting to be careful to set a good precedent that things in his reign are going to happen quickly. He's not going to let things fall by the wayside. He's going to be a good, uh, efficient governor of the region. And so he wasn't just going to bow to the Jews' every whim. He was, he was also calling them to come, come to me, come to Caesarea. And for the sake of Paul, we can be very thankful of this, I think, his desire to follow Roman law. And so as Proverbs 21, verse 1 tells us, The king's heart, or the ruler's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so through Festus' desire to rule decently and in order, according to Roman law, God's purposes were being brought into fruition. And here we see the Lord's common grace, too, where he's holding back Festus from just giving in to this desire to please the Jews and give Paul over to them. And so he's wanting to honor Paul's Roman citizenship. It's a, it's a big piece of the puzzle here. He wants to do things carefully and in order. And That's all what's going on in this case. And so we can find the court case. We will find the court case, this time recorded by Luke, with far more brevity than the court cases of the past few chapters, where it's much more drawn out, but here it's very simple. So in verse 7, Luke tells us that the Jews from Jerusalem made, quote many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Interesting that he mentions that tidbit once again. They could not prove their accusations. And then in response, in verse 8, we see that Paul... Uh, Stands up and says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So he refutes their accusations on every account. I've not done anything wrong according to Jewish law or the Jewish faith. I've not in any way blasphemed the temple, sort of the central feature of the Jewish faith. And I've also not done anything against Caesar uh, in doing these things. And so at this point in the narrative, it's clear to us, the readers, Paul is innocent, and so Luke evidently just doesn't feel the need to really go into all the details all over again. He doesn't need to hash it out. All he really wants us to know is that Festus has now been fully briefed on what's been going on, and so Festus now knows uh, the state of the situation, and he can hopefully make a ruling. But as we've seen, his loyalties, despite his commitment to Roman policy, Festus's loyalties are with the Jews. He wants to keep things amicable and smooth with the Jews, as Luke points out in verse 9, where he is wanting to do the Jews a favor. And so he asks Paul... Interestingly, he asks Paul if Paul wants to go and be tried in Jerusalem. Now, it's funny because the Jews have already asked him when he was visiting Jerusalem... Could you bring Paul here to be tried here? And he says, no, I'm going to do things the right way. I'm going to do things in good order. So you need to come to Caesarea where he's going to be tried there. And now he's saying, well, maybe it would be better if we just let Paul go and be tried in Jerusalem. He was trying to do them a favor. And such favors were common then as they, were, or as they are still sort of today. It's sort of one of those I'll scratch my back, you scratch mine sort of situations here. And so for obvious reasons... Paul, being perceptive and smart and wise, he rejects this invitation to go and be tried in Jerusalem, and he responds in verse 10 with the words, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. So Paul, as a Roman citizen, knows good Roman order and law. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. Or you yourself, to Festus, you know very well. And if, then I, if I am then a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. So he's saying, if I have done something wrong, go ahead and kill me, but I'm innocent. So he's proclaiming his innocence once again in a very strict or strong way. And then he says, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. So he knows this should not be happening. And so he finishes then by slamming the door shut on this whole idea of going back to Jerusalem with the words, I appeal to Caesar. Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. And so with this, the whole narrative then begins to change. Uh, The whole narrative of chapters 23, 24, and now 25, where he's sort of been languishing in this limbo state in prison. Now it's all going to begin to shift out of it. And so in the following verse, Festus replies, to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you will go. And so the trajectory has been set. Paul is finally going to be getting out of Caesarea. After these two plus years of sitting in a prison cell there, he's going to be making his way to the very heart of the Roman Empire itself. But before we move on, I think it's important to note once again, as we've been doing in the past few weeks, the parallels that Luke is putting forward into our minds between Paul and and Jesus. He wants us to see some some things here. And so it's interesting that in both the book of Luke and now in this book, Acts, there's a lot of similarities between these trials. So we can see that in both stories, and in the case of both Jesus and Paul, both faced official Roman hearings. That's one similarity. Both trials included Roman governors, Herodian princes, Jewish accusers and the defendant. So those four sort of characters are present in each story of Jesus and Acts or of Jesus and Paul. Both hearings are held at the governor's behest. So Jesus is is called to be heard by Pontius Pilate and so now here this, in the same way Festus is calling Paul forward for this hearing. Similarly, both were found innocent by the authorities. So both authorities could see that Both of them had done nothing truly wrong and were actually innocent men who should be freed if all things were going to go according to good principle. Both were accused by the Jewish elite who demanded death for acts supposedly against Israel and Caesar. And so the Jewish elite, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day in both Jesus' day and Paul's are the ones who are accusing him and they're accusing him of acts against Israel or the Jewish faith. And against Caesar. And then finally, both were innocent and yet not freed. Paul, even though it's clear that he's innocent, Festus still keeps him in prison. Now he's trying to figure out what to do with him before he sends him on his way. And so it's clear then that Luke is wanting us to see these similarities. I think one of the reasons is that he wants us to see that following Christ means our lives will take a similar shape to the life of Jesus. We as Christians are those who pick up our cross and follow him. So we will walk like Christ into suffering as Paul is doing here. And so it's for good reason then that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate Paul as Paul is imitating Christ. But now we come to the second half of the passage in verses 13 through 22, where now we find that the king Agrippa and his sister Bernice had come to town to visit the newly installed governor. So it's still probably within the same week of Festus' installation, and so it would, would have been Normal for the king of the region to come and to uh, to visit and to be a part of the festivities. And so, interestingly, this King Agrippa was the second, as Agrippa the second. We've already met Agrippa the first earlier on in the Book of Acts, back in Acts chapter twelve, the king who was killed by the angel of the Lord for uh, being. Too prideful and conceited, and receiving the praise of the Jews as being not a man but God, and so we're told an angel of the Lord struck him down in their midst. And so, because he died so soon, his son Agrippa the second, this one here. In Acts 25, he was too young at the time to take over as the acting king. And so the province was then turned over to the procurator or to the governor, to use the language we've been using through this series. And so while Agrippa was still technically the king, and he still had responsibilities and some duties that were given to him by the emperor, by Caesar himself, he was still sort of seen as a a figure piece and not really the one with full authority. But he did have serious responsibilities, and one of his responsibilities was to sort of watch over the temple to make sure everything in Jerusalem at the temple was in good working order, and also he had the a power or the, the privilege to choose and appoint who was going to be the new high priest whenever there would be a new high priest for the Jews. And so he still had a, a, a serious bit of importance, at least as far as the relationship between the roman province went with the jewish people he was kind of the middleman in some way in in this whole situation and so as the governor and the young king begin to talk festus begins to lay out the case and lay out what's been going on and trying to uh, seek the king's advice and counsel with what to do and how to proceed and so in short he tells the king three things that had been done and so verses 15 and 16, he tells Agrippa of how while he was visiting Jerusalem, the Jews made their case against Paul, and they requested that Paul uh, be condemned as a criminal and then killed. uh, But in how he instead insisted that, no, they they must come to Caesarea, and he he must be allowed to speak to his accusers and defend himself. And then in verses 17 through 19, he tells Agrippa that as soon as he returned to Caesarea, he immediately convened the court, again, very efficiently, taking care of business as he needs to, and then he, he also tells him here that as he heard the case, he could tell that there was really nothing that Paul had done wrong. It was just a matter of a theological disagreement about this man named Jesus and whether or not he was dead or actually was somehow alive. And then in verses 20 and 21, he concludes by telling Agrippa that because he felt out of his depth in deciding or determining or making a judgment in this theological dispute that was taking place, that he had acceded to Paul's appeal to be sent to Caesar. And so interestingly then, in the final verse of our passage, as Agrippa hears all of this, he responds to him saying by, by saying, I would like to see or hear this man tomorrow. And so Festus tells him, Tomorrow you will hear him. Uh, it's going to happen. And we'll see that next week as we get into that part of the of the book. But for this this part of it, we can just see that Agrippa was interested. Agrippa wants to hear about this interesting religion. As the one who was sort of the mediator, in a sense, between the Roman province and the governor and the Jews, he was, I'm sure, very curious about this Paul and this Christian religion that the followers of the Way. And so he, he has an intellectual curiosity, as we see, and we'll get, look more at that next time. But I think it's quite possible that in showing us this story, Luke is wanting to make a few points uh, about this exchange, points that would be especially helpful to early Christians who would have been the original readers of the book, but also for us today. And so the first point, I think, that Luke is wanting them to see is that Paul was innocent. Paul was an innocent man and that God was helping him through this long, drawn-out, difficult process. For early Christians who were still new to their faith reading this letter... It would have been a bit alarming to hear that this supposed leader, this supposed apostle, uh, was actually facing all kinds of trials and struggles. And it would also have been alarming, not just because it would have caused them to question Paul, but because it would have made them think, well, what if I'm following Paul? Am I going to be put in prison too? And so Luke is showing them that God is seeing Paul through this situation, but Luke is also showing them that, look, Paul is innocent and it's actually uh, part of luke 's case for on paul 's behalf to show that this is happening it would have seemed to them of course incongruent that this godly guy Paul, was in such a difficult situation, uh, but Luke wants to show that actually his being in prison proves his apostleship. It proves that he is legitimate, that he is the authoritative apostle who has been called and set aside by Christ. And so this is why I think it's important to see that Luke is drawing these parallels between Jesus and Paul. He's wanting them to see basically this idea of, hey, look, you claim to follow Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember the man who was tried unfairly, who was innocent and yet still killed at the command of a Roman governor. If we're his followers, we should expect much the same to happen to us as well. So instead of disproving Paul's authority, Luke is wanting to show how this actually proves Paul's authority, because Paul is suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And so the truth here for us then, brothers and sisters, is that as Christians, we are not guaranteed a life without pain, a life without suffering, a life without grief. If anything, we're guaranteed the exact opposite. Following Christ is a veil of tears. Following Christ is difficult. We pick up our crosses. That's what this is all about. We are dying to ourselves. We are living this difficult life. And yet we do this because Christ has already done it. We are following in His footsteps. And so this is why Jesus says in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so, therefore, our prayer... Ought not to be that we would be delivered from all pain and displeasure and discomfort in this life, but for the strength of faith that will get us through these moments when we inevitably do. So that's the first point Luke is wanting to make. But secondly, he's also wanting us to see through the repeated court cases over the past few chapters, and in the insightful comment of Festus here in verse 19, where he says that uh, they were disputing whether or not this man Jesus was dead or alive— Paul, or Luke wants us to see that this whole thing, the whole discussion here, the whole truth of the Christian faith hinges on whether or not Jesus is alive. Paul has been driving this point home for the past few chapters in each of his different trials that he's been met with, talking about the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that I am in trouble and standing before you, he says again and again. And given what we know of Paul's teaching and his preaching, it wasn't just any resurrection. It wasn't just the final resurrection that he's talking about. He does, of course, believe that. He is talking, of course, about the resurrection of this man, Jesus, this one from Nazareth, who had died and had now come back to life. Paul thought of Jesus then as the first fruits of the final resurrection, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. In his glorified body, we will We will be raised as well. And so for Paul, this was the grand truth of all things, the resurrection. The only reason he had even gone from being a zealous Christian persecuting Pharisee to now being a follower of Christ was because he himself had seen the resurrected Christ. He had seen him as he appeared to him saying, Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, Saul, Paul, same man as we know. It's actually, by the way, not a name change. It just has to do with his Jewish name and his Greek or Roman name. But he had seen Jesus. He had seen the, the, the resurrected Christ. And so this is why Paul hangs the hat of the Christian faith on this doctrine. This is truly... The matter on which Christianity stands or falls. And so he writes in First Corinthians fifteen, fourteen through seventeen. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here's the, the kicker. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So there it is. Simple as that. The whole thing falls or stands on the resurrection, whether or not it happened. And if it didn't, we are wasting our time here tonight. You're wasting your time listening to the blabberings of an uninformed lie teller. I'm wasting my time by writing this sermon. We've wasted a lot of time over the years coming to church, listening to these sermons, going to youth group, raising our kids, stressing about raising our kids to follow Jesus. We've wasted a lot of money in giving to a cause that is ultimately built on a lie. That is how serious, that's how high the stakes are to this whole thing. But while I could easily spend the next few hours of the night going into the proofs and the evidences for the resurrection of Christ, I will submit to you that for me, one of the most important and the most uh, mind-opening evidences of the resurrection of Christ is sitting here, still in a Roman prison cell in this little city of Caesarea, waiting and waiting for his moment to go on, waiting, knowing that no matter what happens, I'm going to follow the Lord. How would such a one give up his life of power, of privilege, of wealth, of authority as a Pharisee of Pharisees, a leader of the people of Israel, to now be the one who is hunted? The hunter has become the prey, as we've seen. And so Paul sits here, nothing to gain, nothing earthly or material to gain, only the riches of heaven to gain. That, for me, is one of the most important parts of the story. Paul believes the resurrection, and he shows that with his life. And so, brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ, praise the Lord, will come again. And so our faith, as Paul says, is not futile. It's not worthless. We are not wasting our time here. We are not still in our sins, in our preaching, and our teaching is still important. We can see all of the sufferings of this life then as but a momentary affliction, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Let's pray.